Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Positive Pessimist Podcast. It's Wrestling Wednesday. My guest today is Lee Kemp. Lee Kemp is one of the greatest U.S. wrestlers of all time. He was a three-time world champion. He was a member of the 1980 Olympic team that got boycotted. He was a three-time NCAA champion, four-time finalist. He closed out his career with a 101-match win streak. He defeated Dan Gable when he before he was 19 years old. So he was 18 at the Northern Iowa Open when he defeated... All-time legend Dan Gable, which I just cannot wrap my brain around. Um, he was 11-8 and eight as a sophomore in high school before going undefeated for two years in Ohio and then going on to do what he did, making the finals as a true freshman in college where he lost a double overtime match to previous guest Chuck Yagla. So just an absolute phenomenal wrestler and uh, he still looks like he's 40 and he's I know for a fact he's 66 65 or 66 and uh, I'm really looking forward to talking to him so without any further ado let's bring him in hey Tim how are you I'm good how are you today Doing good. Good. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Oh, of course. Of course. Um, the first question I wanted to ask you, Mr. Kemp, is how you stay in such good shape. Wow. Um, <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, you know, it's um, it's diet more than anything else. I, I, I don't work out that much because I've got a different philosophy about that, different than most people um, in terms of working out as you get older. Okay. Uh, the, that philosophy is um, I want to I want to be able to to be healthy just doing like normal activities because as you age you're going to get forced into that anyway um, just because I can still go to the wrestling room and wrestle with people you know there's, there's a point if I need that to stay in shape then what happens if I don't have that intense level of exercise or even yeah. Or even a moderate level of exercise. Like, I don't lift weights. Although I do calisthenics at home, just basic stuff. But, um, like, a gym membership to be being able to lift and all that kind of stuff or run. I see people running, you know, that look older. They look like they're in so much pain. Suffering. <laughs> <laughs> and I just think, I'm not going to do that. I did when I was competing. I saw this post, social media posts, about a former Iowa wrestler talking about red flag days and most of us don't even know i mean we, we we know that means that's an intense day but if you're an iowa wrestler that went through gable's red flag days the way he explained that was like brought back so many memories not that i was coached by gable but i guess i was for a brief period but i mean like you think you're gonna die literally i mean your, your mind kind of starts flirting with the idea of dying would be better than this <laughs> so not many human beings have ever gone gone there you know and and i've gone there and, and now i'm like if, if i'm doing push-ups and the last 10 get hard like if i was my goal was to do 30 and i got to 20 and it got to be a little hard i just stopped okay because, you know i mean it, it's like and that, that seems contrary though but i like a lot of people will get their bodies in great shape and they go on a vacation and it gets all screwed up because they can't work out like they they missed two weeks of their routine or their diet or 
I want to be able to eat in such a way that if I go on a vacation, my diet stays really the same because the way I eat is so simplistic that I could get the food I eat anywhere. You know, I'm a vegetarian, um, not, not a vegan, but I, I can be, but, um, I can go because of wrestling. I can go all day and I eat if I want, if I want to, um, I can, I fast pretty much every day anyway to about, I don't eat till about one o'clock, one or two o'clock after sleeping all night. So, uh, it's just stuff like that, really. Now that you got me sort of thinking about it, um, like my son asked me just yesterday uh, if I was going to stop by wrestling practice soon. I'm like, when he said that, I'm thinking, my first thought was, no, I don't want to do that. But then I thought, well, <laughs> yeah, okay. You know, I can, I can do that. I'm not going to do much, but I, I can go there and show some technique and all that. But it's 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 like the minim, minimalist. I don't know if you ever saw this documentary on that i love that documentary because you can apply it to so many things in life like the minimalist lifestyle and you probably know what i'm talking about right when i say that oh yeah yeah i'm getting better about it all the time i think yeah so i I apply that to everything now because because really at at my age or our age whatever i mean not my son always corrects me said dad quit saying you're old well i'm not old but i'm 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 realistic enough to know that I shouldn't be out there trying to wrestle with Jordan Burroughs. That's stupid, you know? <laughs> although although I, my mind says I probably can do it just for a while. I mean, I'm in good shape. I, could, I spar with good guys just because I know where my level is. It's almost like riding a bike, you know? Mm-hmm. You can always get on a bike, but that doesn't mean I want to go up and go mountain biking, you know? It's a big difference. Yeah. So, uh, I appreciate the answer because I, I'm 47 now, and in some ways I'm healthier than I've ever been in my life. You know, physically, um, you know, I could probably do more push-ups and run farther than I could when I was uh, when I was in my mid 20s. I mean, I'm, I was definitely wasn't healthy back then. But so I was just curious because, I mean, gosh, I bet you still look like you're 35, 40 years old. At least the last time I, I saw you, I actually met you very briefly once at an NCAs. You and Kenny Monday were nice enough to take a picture with me and my brother. And uh, at the time, I was like, I know this guy's at the time, like, pushing 60, and <laughs> man, you, you don't look like it. Well, you know, Jordan Burroughs said this. <clears throat> just, I was just with him this last weekend. For, you know, I'm really excited to be around some of our wrestling royalty, you know. and just happened to be in Cleveland, my own city. You may have seen some of the photos from there. But uh, um, I said something a long time ago. I remember, I mean, like, a long time ago. And he, he brought it up actually doing an interview. He's being interviewed, and I was sitting right next to him. And he said that Lee Kemp said something to me I'll never forget. He said that I always want to look like I was a world champion. <laughs> and, uh, and he's absolutely right. When he said that, I, I remember saying that. So that that's another caveat to it. I think we all have to have an image of ourselves. And frankly, I can't understand how people can let their image go now. There could be sicknesses or disease, whatever. I mean, an injury, something could could make that, you know, much more uh, difficult, you know. But if if all those are pushed out of the way, then it's all on you, you know. Then 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 you have to own up to it and figure out some changes that you have to make in order to, you know. I, I just, you know, and I say this, and I hope I don't get cursed with it, but I. Sometimes I say to myself, I, you know, I think, well, if I ever got to a point where, 
you know, my weight was in <clears throat> difficult or whatever, I, I just would have to change the, my perspective on food, you know. Food would have to be, you know, something I need to nourish my body to live rather than just pleasure. Most of eating is pleasure. Even most of the eating I do is pleasure. And I eat like once a day, but that one meal I want it to be something that I want and like, so it's pleasurable in a way. Um, if you if you couldn't have eating be pleasurable because you were trying to focus on maybe losing a lot a lot of weight or something like that, I mean, you just have to switch your perspective. It's like smoking, right? You want to quit smoking? You can't hang out at bars with your friends who smoke. You know, you, you have to just make some abrupt changes in your lifestyle which is hard for people. It's hard for me to make. I mean, I don't like changing my lifestyle around sometimes. So the answer, you got me, this is a topic, I love this topic because I'm faced with it every day, really. I got my workout in today, small workout though. Um, I'm really enjoying working with this mace now, if you know what I mean. It's like, I get them from uh, Onnit, the Onnit Academy in Austin, Texas. Do you know what I mean when I say a mace? I do not. It's uh, it's like Reggie, like a photograph out of ancient medieval days where I'm holding this big club, it looks like. <laughs> it's like a long, uh, like a bat, but at the end is weighted, you know. it's weighted, The whole thing is weighted, but at the end is more like a barbell with a, a you know, a, a pipe, iron pipe in the middle of it. So you're holding it like you're holding a, a, cl- a club, basically, but it's big, it's long. And the the more you hold it toward the end, you know, the more your wrist has to be involved. Okay. And um, and you and just a twenty pound weight, a twenty pound weight, a, a mace weighing twenty pounds is hard to move around because of the way it's shaped. So I I'm getting focused on that now, just because it's fun, just to mix it up a little bit. So I don't do much with it, but I just grab it and move it around. And there's some specific exercises. If you just Google workouts with mace, you'll see people using it. Okay. But but a twenty pound one is pretty. I mean, it's 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 intense. Um, and then there's people who are my size doing thirty pounds, and it's crazy. It wrists and it's whole body movement because you're swinging throughout your whole body. You know, you're swinging this thing around. that has got a heavy object on the end, and you're being you're swinging it. So just the object, just the the. The motion of moving it creates exercise. And, and I'm sorry that I don't remember the name of it, but you have, didn't you have a food company or a supplement company or something? Yes, I did actually. It was called Forza. Forza. I was, I was, um, I was interning and working in a uh, wellness center, and a good friend of mine owned that wellness center. So they, uh, it was a kind of a holistic type of a place. Uh, and actually, there was uh, some chiropractic doctors that were available to the staff. And actually, one MD that was just the mother of the woman who owned it. So they did have a, an MD there, too. But um, but anyway, I saw the um, I saw the uh, um, just the supplements that they were using. And so I got to know the. Uh, the owner of that company was called Premier Research Labs. And this wellness practice, they were using those supplements, you know, as the manufacturer's source. 
So I, I decided to use that manufacturer to create my own line. It was a big venture. It was fun. It was fun. About a four-year venture it was fun. I, I enjoyed, I'm glad I did it, you know. Um, but, yeah, I did. And so I, I learned a lot about nutrition. And uh, we were the uh, nutritional partner of USA Wrestling for a while, for about two years. And... Um, did some promotional videos around it and had Jordan Burroughs. This is back when he went to the Olympics and we won it in 2012. Okay. And he supported me and did a little promotional video on Henry Sudo and um, it was fun. It was kind of a cool thing. Yeah. yeah, I've learned a lot about portion control. You know, like when I was younger, I would eat so much, just ridiculous. And, and now I, I feel terrible if I eat too much and sometimes my wife and I'll go to dinner and I'm like man this could feed four people what they just brought us why (laughs) you know and we'll split it sometimes and still take some of it home in a box I'm like man I don't know how anyone eats this entire meal I mean I would have to sleep for eight hours if I if I ate this you know we are like my son eats a lot of food like when you're young we you can do it which is obvious that our body changes and I tell that to my son all the time man you're you're what, 22 years old, you can eat a whole, literally a whole cow. You could put your whole cow right there. You probably could down the whole thing, you know? <laughs> but, uh, um, but that will change, you know? It will, it changes for everybody. It doesn't matter who you are. It will change. And, uh, um, but yeah, the metabolism changes and, and, and you have to be able to listen to your body. Like you were saying, you've got to be able to listen to your body and uh, understand what your body is saying to you. And if you eat food and you have gas and you don't, you know, all that kind of stuff, your body's not meant to do that. Right. Obviously, there's a problem there. So you have to change. Yeah, I finally I finally understand where that saying comes from, uh, youth is wasted on the young, because when you're young, you've got the body to do all this stuff, and then and but you're kind of dumb, and then you get a little older, and your body falls apart when you start figuring things out, and you're like, damn it! <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's exactly right, you know, and, um, and if you try to keep doing what you did when you were young, completely, you know, uh, it, it just there comes a point where it's gonna all stop. Now, again, I like to have some some like what I call ride your bike activities. Like I can still drill, I can still teach a wrestling clinic. I think I, I remember guys like Harold Nichols in his well, obviously he was in his sixties then, but when I was in college. But um, but I remember him well. I, I've seen coaches like seventy, seventy five. Like Stan Dazic, seventy. He still can teach wrestling clinics you know i mean so i i know i can still get down on the mat and, and, and show stuff you know and i don't see why that would ever stop as long as i maintain my mobility now i'm not going to be wrestling with people but i can show up a move and i can get into positions and i can show hand fighting and stuff like that and i call that riding a bike i always want to be able to i mean there's about six basic body movements i try to do every day i try to squat down completely uh I try to bend at the waist. I want to twist at the waist, twist my neck, look over my shoulder. Um, I don't necessarily want to lift uh, an object, but I want to be able to lift my weight up, you know, so I have a chin up bar home. Uh, I worked at Lifetime Fitness for a while as a personal trainer, and I, I wanted, I liked working with older clients. And there's a point when 
people give up on trying to do a pull, a pull up, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. cause they don't really need to do it. And 30 years goes by and now they're 50 and I'll get a client. And of course they think they're just going to pedal on a bike or do something. You go to a class or something. I take them over to the chin bar and okay, let's see how many chins you can do. And because if you, you know, I want to build that strength and, and they like, wow, I can't believe I can't even do one. <laughs> and it's like, um, a lot of most women can't really, who've never been an athlete can't do any, but you work with them for about three months, they can do a couple, three, four chin-ups. And that's an accomplishment. I think it's a big deal. I mean, if you get into a situation where you need one to do one or two to save your life, that'd be a shame if you couldn't pull yourself up over a window ledge in order to save yourself, you know? Yeah. I always I, think about it functionally like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I read somewhere, I don't know how they come up with these stats, but they're like, 80% of American males can't do one pull-up. And I'm like, well, first of all, I don't know how you came up with that stat, but that that's probably true. I meet a lot of people that can't do any. Oh, I, I know that. So I was a trainer, and I saw it myself. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I can't do 30 anymore, but, I mean, don't need to do 30 anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I can do about 10 at all times, and I'm I'm, I'm okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. So, getting into the wrestling, how you know, I know you started as a freshman in Ohio, which is a really great wrestling state, but you, you went from eleven and eight as a sophomore in high school to a two-time undefeated state champ, and then made the NCAA finals as a true freshman, um, losing in double overtime to Chuck Yagla. And it's hard for anyone who wrestled to wrap their brain around how someone made that kind of progress and that short of time uh, relatively speaking what what changed was it mental physical it was uh it was a little bit of both but but really it was more mental because that uh that the the summer in between that 500 season i was a sophomore it was my first year of varsity only my second year of wrestling um, and I went to a camp where Dan Gable was the, the instructor and he was, it was the summer of 1972 and he was training for the Olympic Games. So he was there with his training partners, Ben and John Peterson. Uh, if you, if you look at the staff that was there, I mean, it was like everybody at that time, 1972, it was Stan Abel was a young man. He was there. It was his camp. Um, he had Jerry Stanley, who was a national champ. Harold Nichols was there, uh, in addition to the local uh, state champs from Ohio. Uh, Ethan Reeves was a recent state champion. Jim Humphrey was there. He's an Ohio wrestler. Uh, they were all much older than me. but <clears throat> So I got to watch all that. And um, I something clicked in my brain, and I wanted to be that. And that's the key. That's the thing in life that's hard to figure out. When the switch gets flipped and why my switch got flipped then i don't know i have no idea why um but i observed everything i saw gable doing he was he was the lebron james of wrestling i mean he was the michael jordan of wrestling or whoever you want to call it you know he was and he and the, the russians looked at gable as being the one they wanted to be the pressure he must have felt was incredible, enormous. But I, I watched everything he did. 
I watched him eat lunch. I mean, I was staring at this guy. <laughs> he didn't know I was, but boy, I was watching him because I thought maybe he eats something different. Maybe just walking the way he walks. And, and, and really, if you see some of the former Iowa wrestlers, maybe not now because so many years have gone by, but a lot of the Iowa wrestlers during his era would pick up his mannerisms. It's no different than a married couple, right? It's, I mean, you know, you see people picking up mannerisms, people that they admire, that they're around a lot. They would pick up his cadence of how he walked, how he talked, how he just, you know, just how he laughed, everything about him. And But I was there for just a five-day camp, and I just was that intense, sat in the front. When he needed a drill partner to show technique, I made sure no one was going to get up there before me. I was his drill partner, and I had just started wrestling. I was so awkward. I poked him in the eye. I mean, I was one of those kids he should have should have picked a different drill partner, but that showed me a lot about him as a human being. He he cared about her, you know, my feelings as a human being. He didn't make me feel uh, uncomfortable. He didn't make me feel like I was done something wrong or that I was inadequate. He made me feel like I was okay. Um, and so the whole week, he was my, you know, I he, we drilled. I mean, where he showed the technique on me. And so I felt I would learn more by him drilling on me, you know. So uh, so then when I got back from the camp, I just started to do everything I saw him do. You know, and uh, it's a good thing he was doing good stuff because if he'd have been sitting around telling dirty jokes, and I not thought I'd pick that up too, but I'm just saying I've seen wrestlers, though, pick up things from some of those other type of wrestlers, you know. I've seen it, you know, I mean, some of the edgy kind of wrestlers. They have success. Rick Sanders is a good example, real-life example. I saw how people talked about Rick Sanders during my era. Rick Sanders was on that 72 Olympic team as well. And Gable talked about Rick Sanders. He talked about Rick as having so much ability, if he only trained like me, he'd be, he would, no, no one could beat him. And Rick started to believe that too, but it was too late because he was, after he, after he took second in the Olympic Games, he made a public statement that he was going to start spending more time with Gable because he really felt that he could be better. And um, so I, I had a great example of someone to emulate. And I, not that I could wrestle like him, but the intensity and the work ethic. You know, the work ethic back... There were nine-minute matches back then. Uh, wrestling is not so much work ethic-oriented today. Because it's not a it's not an endurance kind of a sport like it maybe used to be. Because mm -hmm. we wrestle for nine minutes. Wow. Six minutes is not you. You know, I mean, you have to you have to be able to be explosive, have better technique. So as a result, wrestling has gotten more athletic. As you can, from as I see, it's more athletic. Guys can do backflips on the mat while they're wrestling. You know, all this stuff. They're they're very very gymnastic oriented. In addition to the, the technique that they're doing, um, if I was wrestling today, I'd be forced to be more, uh, uh, maybe not athletic per se, but I certainly was athletic, but I didn't use it as much as I see certain wrestlers using it today. Some, some wrestlers are like incredibly athletic, man. They, they, you know, they do things. 
can you point to a reason why? Like, do you do you think you were holding back as as much success and as great as you were? Do you think you were ever holding back, athletic, athletically speaking? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, I can remember Bobby Douglas, and I love Bobby Douglas to death. I think he's an unsung hero. I think he was severely mistreated as a as a coach over his lifetime as coaching. But anyway, uh, that's another story. But. He saw me as a young, athletic black athlete, you know, and and a lot of the athletes, black athletes, he coached. He coached them into more of an athletic style, and they were already athletic, like like a Nate Carr type of guy wrestled an athletic style, um, very athletic style. Uh, so did Kenny Monday. Um, Jordan Burroughs kind of is that way. I I didn't have anybody in front of me to show me that first of all, and so. Uh, I just had uh, Gable, actually, this slow white guy, you know. <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, so it might have been different. It, you know, it might have been different if Bobby Douglas would have been Gable. And I've heard Gables talk about this. There were about two or three matches that separated Bobby Douglas from being the Dan Gable of his era. Yeah. He, he took third in the Olympics in a true round robin, a match. He was winning the gold medal match and lost in the set closing seconds. He went to a junior college and then basically, you know, almost walked on, but he won the junior college. He's from poor, poor environment, poor background in Bridgeton, Bridgeton, Ohio, whatever, made his way to Oklahoma State, the premier college in the nation, took second in the nation as a junior. As a senior, he was like a hundred times better than everybody and got a concussion and he was out. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah. I think. I think that was some racism that pulled him out of that because that was that was before anybody knew anything about concussions. He he, there was a head situation in the match. He won the match, and then he went to you know seek medical treatment. I don't know, and then they disqual they pulled they disqualified him. Wow! I mean, back then, I mean, guys wrestled, played football with. He could have won that blindfolded. But he, but I think there was some foul play there that screwed him out of that. But um, anyway, uh, then he was very close to being a world champion. He lost some close matches. I, I've heard Gable talk about that. You know, I mean, he he whipped Gable so many times. No one wants to talk about it. I mean, there's a story about when um, Gable was coming up. It was a seventy. Uh, so I don't know which seventy sixty eight world team or something like that. I think Gable graduated in 1970, so Gable was definitely getting better. So he tried out for the world team, and the, Bobby beat him 11 to one. And they made him wrestle again, and he beat him a similar score. They made him wrestle again. They wrestled like five times in a row because they wanted Gable to win that match. Huh. <laughs> and uh, finally, Bobby said, "Well, it's obvious you want Dan to be on the team. I quit." And he walked away. And it was Dan Gable's dad that walked, stepped up, and said, "Look, that's okay. He, they, they, you know, Bobby's on the team." Wow, that's how things. That's how things were back then. Yeah, and, um, and I, I went through something similar with Gable. I don't, I'll, I don't know. I just uh, in my first world team, uh, Dave Schultz had mostly the experience, even though he was young, and um, and I was I was young too. I was twenty one, but Dan, uh, but but uh, Dave Schultz was a freshman in college that year. I was a senior, and 
I beat him three to three criteria, but I beat him. He was the ladder, and I was going up the ladder, and Dan walked up after the match, and you need to wrestle Schultz again. And that was, there's no precedent for that. It was the mini tournament. I won the mini tournament by beating Schultz and another guy. And, uh, but back then, I, there was no internet. There was no, you know, I was, I was there by myself. Yeah. It, it was Gable's team, and I saw him as a, I thought, well, that's how it works. You know, he's the coach. He wants me, you know, so I wrestle him. Had I had it been today, it would have screwed up my mind. I would have been mentally thinking all these other negative thoughts, like he's messing with me, he's racist, he's this, he's that. It would have, but I didn't think any of that stuff. I just didn't care. Yeah, being racist never entered my mind. It's just I just thought, wow, this is I never. I guess that's how they do things. And then I beat him nine to two that next match because I was I was really upset by it, but I didn't know yeah. what to do about it other than just beat him, you know, and and then. Uh, but I really think, though, that Dan thought that uh, Chuck Yeager was sitting at the top of the ladder. And I think he thought that Chuck had a better chance of beating Dave Schultz than me, actually. Maybe. Maybe he was thinking that far ahead. But I'm, I'm, I went up the ladder. I beat everybody. And I beat Chuck one match by one point. And then the, the second match, it was a, another criteria match. So I thought, oh, he's going to make me wrestle again. So... I walked off the mat and I just started warming up again and he walked up to me and said, you don't have to wrestle. You're, you're on the team. So, I mean, I'll just tell you this story to, just to exemplify how life is. It's how you look at it. And I think that sparked the original question as to what changed to, to allow me to go from one year, 500 next year, undefeated state champion. It's just your, It's just the way you frame something in your mind and it's your intention intention is different than a goal because a goal is could be long range it could be short range whatever your intentions are formed minute to minute you know and uh when you have intent when you when you have a strong intention to do something that is the driving force to Everything that happens after that, the hard work, you know, the, the you know, the handling the pressure, uh, because all you know is you want this thing and you don't even have time to think about all the other stuff. Yeah. Uh, and, but when you do have time to think about the other stuff, that's when everything starts getting fuzzy. I'm nervous. Uh, I, I look at my son as an example, you know, I tried to work with him and. And I could see him going through all the stuff that everybody goes through when they try to achieve something. They're nervous. Uh, you know, he had a famous dad, so it was a lot of pressure on him all the time. There's just no way to escape it. But he finally won when he told dad, just leave me alone. And he walked over in a corner by himself and because he had five minutes to get ready for this one match to, to blood around in the state tournament. And I walked over to him because I didn't know what to say. I thought, I, dad, I had to say something motivating to inspire him he said dad just leave me alone he just walked away came back and beat that kid so that tells me that there's it's the, the simple answer is that we have to walk that road alone and uh there is no really simple answer you have to have a strong intention and you have to just decide that you're gonna walk down that lonely road alone and it, it could be a dark road when a lot of peril along the way but for some reason 
you are equipped with everything you need to walk down that road. And you're not even thinking about whether you're going to be successful or not. You just know you have to walk down that road. And that's how I was when I competed. It, um, when you start to lose at the end is when you start to second guess yourself. You start to worry. You start to, I'm trying to break this record. I'm trying to break that record. You know, you just start like everybody else. We all fall into that, that little, that little rut, I guess. We have other responsibilities now. And, but, but if you can recognize that you are in that zone, we call it the zone or whatever, that's when you have to really make sure you take advantage of everything presented to you because that doesn't happen often. And when it happens, it's only usually a little window of time that you can take command of yourself and your mind and your emotions and everything and and um, and and hopefully achieve what you are intending to achieve. And that's 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 what I did when I wrestled. I, I don't know why it happened. I mean, uh, I had lots of one point matches with some of the best talent. The defending state champion, I beat four by one point. And it was, you know, I don't know why I decided to do this move when I did it, but it worked. And I think the universe opens up a little bit when you have your intentions are so strong. And we all know, I believe that we're all, we all just vibrate at certain frequencies and, you know, atoms, even at everything around us is just vibrating and human beings vibrate. And when you vibrate to a different or higher level, you can, you can manifest the universe. I mean, I, I've seen it happen in my own life. Yeah. I, I talked to the guy um, that I beat it, uh, in the Ohio high school state tournament in the semifinals, Jerry Metcalf, he's the defending state champion. And, and he was nice enough to give an interview for my documentary. So I, I was able to see him, after you know, we wrestled 1973, and we were finishing the documentary in 2008 or nine, somewhere in there. And he still, he says, I still think about that match, Lee, and it's kind of made me feel like, oh my gosh. He said, I, I just remember that moment that I was, I felt vulnerable, I was open, I could see that you were going after my life, but I just froze. I couldn't do anything. <laughs> I just got chills when he said that. Huh. It was just crazy the way he said that. He said, I, I, I said, I wasn't tired. I just could feel that I was open. I could see that you, you were looking at my leg. I could see it. And I couldn't get my leg back. I couldn't move it. Huh. And, and when he said that, he almost had tears in his eyes. And I, we almost teared up together. Even though it was wrestling, right? It's a little stupid event in wrestling. But it's an example of how the universe can manifest itself in life. Um... I was in a car accident where I fell asleep on the highway and car was rolling and I, I lived through that and, and my mental experience going through that changed, as you might think, could change anyone's life, but it changed my life completely. Um, in those short seconds that the car was rolling, it seemed like everything was in slow motion. I mean, there was so much clarity that I could just see everything. It was just like the movies. That's probably how they got back those clips in the movies because people commented about what they experienced when that happened. So they were able to duplicate it in, in a, on film, but that's exactly what happens. It's, it's absolutely, uh, 
it's it's just weird how your mind can slow everything down or speed everything up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my my friend Greg Warren was an All American at Missouri, and he's a fellow stand up comedian. And one time he said, uh, you know, I was talking to him about, you know, I've been doing comedy for a living over twenty one years now, twenty two years, and uh, I still get super nervous sometimes. And I was talking to him about it, and uh, he was like, sometimes you just got to let your talent take over, you know. And that that always made a lot of sense to me. Just like when I was wrestling, if 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 I wasn't thinking and I was just wrestling and letting it letting it go, then that's always when I was best, and that's when I'm best at stand up comedy. And and you never kind of quit learning to you know keep preparing yourself and that kind of thing. And when you are prepared, it it does just kind of take over. Um, I think that's kind of to your point. Yes, a- absolutely to my point. Absolutely, because yes, if you fret over it, it probably you know the chance of it just makes it more difficult when you fret over it. But when you just, when you, um, when you stand in, in, in your truth and the truth is what you know, that's all you can do, really. You have to stand in your truth. And if you, once you can do that, the rest, you just have to let go to the universe. And I call it the universe, but, you know, God, whatever, you know. Yeah, that's awesome. I, uh, I love that. Um, before winning your first NCAA title as a sophomore, you beat Dan Gable at the Northern Iowa Open. Um, Northern Open, but same thing. Yeah, it was a college tournament. Okay. Um, you beat him, and you were still 18 years old, right? Yes. It was less than four years after I had met him. <laughs> less than four years after I had really started wrestling. That's crazy when I think about it. Like that. Yeah. Frame it like that, but... Yeah, I mean, I I had Chris Campbell on, and I was talking to him, and he told me that the first time he and Gable worked out, he goes, I took him down right off the bat, and and I had to stop him. And I go, I go, so you had wrestled for like two years, and I know, I know you, I know you say Dan Gable whooped you in that workout or whatever, but have you ever thought about how young you were and how the fact that you took down Dan Gable? And he goes, <laughs> he goes. Well, you gotta understand, I was a bad boy. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I was like, yes, sir, you were. Uh, <laughs> um, but going back to to the to the match with Dan Gable, uh, what is what is your memory of that match? Well, I look at him as the standard you know and you know when you when you set your standard that high from the very beginning then great things can happen right so um and he talked to us as campers and some of the things he said to us i believed i was probably the only guy in the whole room that believed everything he said like the russians you know uh, america wasn't beating the russians back then and he said that they put their single on one leg at a time, just like I do, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's not, and there's nothing that makes one man better than another that, that they're going to win all the time. Meaning, you know, it's not a, it's not, it's not, it's not, um, it's not something that, that is, that, that you can't change or I can't remember how he worded it, but, um, 
like a person's not predisposed to win just because of who he is. He didn't mention his name, though. If Dan would have said, you could be anyone but me, <laughs> then I wouldn't have beat him because I don't remember that. Yeah. But he made it seem like anyone's beatable. And obviously we knew he had got beat by Larry, Larry uh, Owens back then, right? So we all knew that. So the great Gable got beat by Larry Owens. He talked about that fueling his career after that. So no man's invincible. I think that's kind of how he said it. And it, obviously we all know that as fact. It makes sense. We all know that no human being is infallible or invincible or, you know, we all know that. But until we're faced with it, that's when it becomes difficult. But anyway, so none of my teammates took the match seriously. My coach didn't want me to wrestle him. Everyone, it seemed like I was going to my to 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 be executed as the days <laughs> led up to the match. Really, my roommates laughed at me. My roommates, my teammates, they laughed in my face. I mean, you're about ready to go get smashed by Gable. I mean, you know, and, and when you think about it, they weren't necessarily being rude or. They were being rude and disrespectful, but that just shows you the magnitude that Gable was in everyone's mind. It's to the point where if you if if, if you said I'm going to go one on one with LeBron and I'm going to beat him, people would laugh at you, right? They would they would say, "Why are you even doing this?" And you say, "Well, I'm just I think I I think I can do pretty good against him." And you would just they saw you training and dribbling the basketball, and the, they would just laugh at you. People would, but that I'm trying to frame it how 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 blind you have to be toward an intention. Yeah. Because you could be like when I, when I frame it like that, or you can frame it however you want. Like you can walk into a room with the greatest nuclear physicist and, and you're just a freshman and you, you challenge him on something or you want to, whatever. I mean, just something that just seems ridiculous almost. Yeah. I, I think about how ridiculous that must've been to everyone around me that, I don't know how I was able to focus and stay. And it wasn't that I thought I was going to win. It was that I, I knew I was going to perform, you know, and performing didn't necessarily mean winning. It just mean that like I saw guys that he, like I saw in the tournament, he would just put guys. They looked like they just quit. You know, mm-hmm. they were just overwhelmed by this image that this guy had. So I watched that. And then he was in the semis against a teammate. A guy named Rick Longer, a guy that was a, just a tough Wisconsin farm kid that I beat three to one, and I was you know to make the varsity and stuff. He's tough, tough kid. I was a, I was young and this guy was older, and Dan pinned him in a minute. Wow! <laughs> and so it just kind of fueled that image, you know. And I thought, how how does he do that? It seemed like magic. It's like watching a magic trick or someone performing street magic, right? You say, God, this, how does this happen? And so I thought, I work out with this guy. How, how, how can he pin him, pin him like that? Yeah. And so I just thought, I thought it was magic. And so I knew, I just, I just, I just said to myself, if he's going to pin me like that, then he's going to have to show me. I was one of these show me kind of guys, maybe. Prove it to me, I guess. And so I tried to raise my kids like that, to ne- never be afraid to, to challenge themselves. Don't, don't hide your ability, show it and show what you can do. And if he pins me, he pins me. Gable's that good, I guess. Um, so, um, I, I just, I just, um, I knew I was strong. This is the thing he said after the match, actually. This probably explains it best. 
it's before social media, so uh, people had to wait a day before it came out in the paper. But anyway, I read the next day what he said about the match, and he said that Lee's very strong. Uh, I couldn't get him tired, and I couldn't get him out of position. And so I thought about that. And yeah, I was always in great shape. I knew I was strong. I grew up on a farm myself, and I was strong. I mean, I was in a room working out with guys. I knew <clears throat> I knew I was strong. Mm-hmm. Great shape, and I couldn't get out of position. I mean, I wouldn't get out of position at all. And um, and and so when you have those three things, you can, in, a, in the context of a wrestling match, you can beat anybody. And I noticed that during the match. Dan did a lot of shooting, a lot of pushing, tried to run over me a lot. I mean, you could see the match. He was just, but I was strong enough to, and I was listening to the official quite a bit. You know, cause, I mean, an official realized that he was just pushing me around. He wasn't necessarily wrestling. He was, and maybe that would have been a different. If that match would have been in Iowa, I probably would have been cautioned out right away because yeah. he just kept pushing me around. <clears throat> and so um, the referee kept saying, that, "Come on, but you know, stay in the mat, quit pushing." And so he starts shooting more, and I was able to defend it. And I shot and took him down, and I realized it, he's just a regular, he's just a normal human being. Yeah, just like that, you know. And he. My condition was good. I was strong. And going up a weight class against someone like me makes a difference. It was at 158 versus 150. Just those eight pounds makes a huge difference. Oh, yeah. It's like my dad always would say, a big, uh, let me see, how do you say, uh, how do you say, a big talented man can be a little talented man. Always, or something like that. Yeah, I mean, that makes something, sense. Something matters, you know, it does. If you're talented and you're big, you're probably going to beat someone talented and smaller than you. If, if, if talent's equal, size will matter. And, that, and that's, that weight class made a difference. That one weight class made a difference. But we, but we wrestled after that, though, and just like, a, you ever see the Rocky Two movie? Oh, yeah. Or, where Apollo Creed and, and Rocky they kind of just fought on their own, but no one. I think the movie ended like that. Maybe it was two or three. I can't remember which one it was. Do, do you remember that one? Oh man, I can. I, I'm kind of a nerd about Rocky, so yeah. <laughs> well, well, Dan and I did that. We were, we were, we were. It was this. It was this. It was the Olympic year, '76. He decided not to try out anymore after that, but he was on the coaching staff, and so I was an alternate on that team at at, at one sixty-three. Stan Desick made the team, and I was an alternate to him. So I was in that room, in that process around all these great coaches. So one day after practice, uh, one of one of the training camps was at the University of Wisconsin, and so I was at my home school. Everything was I was always the last guy to leave the restroom. I would take my time, and so one day after the the Olympic practice, everybody had left, and I thought I was in there by myself. And this is weird. My coach was like an angel or something, but Dwayne Coleman, he just, he just popped around the corner and said, Lee, I think Dan wants to work out with you. And then he just vanished, and my coach did. If I was a coach, I would have wanted to watch that. But, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, he just left, and so I, I looked around, and he was gone. So I, I put my shoes back on, and the restroom was dark, except for a little, like it was just a little light. It was just dimly lit in the back of the room. It's like he wanted to be alone. He was just shadow wrestling. And I just walked in the room, walked toward him, and asked him if he wanted to work out. And we did. It was like Rocky. It was like we we were wrestling under the benches. There was no stop. <laughs> there was no 
time clock. We just kept wrestling and wrestling and wrestling. Each go was more intense and more intense. It was like, and we kept going until finally no, neither of us wanted to quit, to verbally quit. And we just kept, after each go, we look at each other and just keep going and keep going and keep going. That pride thing was there. And we were getting tired and we both wanted to quit, but we wouldn't quit until finally we just kind of looked at each other, breathing hard, so hard. We just, and we just, neither of us made the motion to go back for another go. We just sat there. (laughs) (laughs) We just, so we quit at the same time, I think. Man, that's awesome. So uh, it, it was a cool thing. I mean, in a practice setting, Dan would always win because there's no time limit. And uh, he was about 26 years old then. And, but I, in that practice, I learned that you have to have continuous wrestling. Because I can remember I took him down, he took me down, and when he took me down, though, he wouldn't let me go. And I'm thinking, okay, you're going to let me go, right? No, you got to get away. I'm like, oh, my God, so you got to get away. And that takes makes you more tired. So now I thought, Matt Bitter, I could take it down again, man, because he's going to you know wear me out, you know? So... So I just learned so much going them like that. Then we go out of like on the floor, off the mat, under the bench. He's gonna stop, right? No, he's pulling me back on. He wants. And he goes, man, this is how you play this. We're bouncing off the walls. It was it was like a fight, but not a fight. You yeah. Know? It was like it was intense. If I wasn't willing to to deal with that intensity, I would have quit and walked off crying or not crying, but I would have. Yeah. You're being unfair, you know, like, what are you, jerk? What is wrong with you, you know? I just started trying to match his intensity and trying to match. Uh, I, I've done that in my life, too. When I, when I learned that, I started wrestling like that myself in the room. And guys would say that to me. Yeah, you're being silly. This isn't a match. Just you're going too hard. And I would just walk away from him. I just didn't. When you worked out with me in practice, I was really intense. Really intense. If you went out of bounds, I'd pull you back on. If I had a single leg and you were leaning out of bounds to get your balance, I'd put, you know, I, just because you touched out of bounds or you touched the bench or you're going to, no, you're wrestling. And I was physically dominant enough that no one was going to try to fight me. <laughs> so they just left me alone. Just the least, least kind of. Lee's, uh, you don't work out. He's too intense. And so no one will work out with Gabe at the Olympic training camp. Very few. Like, guys would pick one day a week to try to get that dose of Gable. But they'd get beat up so bad that they wouldn't want to do it again for about another week. But I worked out with him every day because he liked working out back then. And so mentally, I, I just got so mentally tough dealing with his intensity that he could deal, that he could dish out. So, uh, he taught me so much about that, the, the mental part of just being tough. You know, um, you know, if you, if you put a, a hundred of the baddest dudes from the toughest prison on the planet in a room, and Gable's one of those people, if you come back in 30 days, Dan would be one of the ones still alive. <laughs> <laughs> That's just the mentality he's got. And if you're not willing to go there, then he's going to beat you every time. Or maybe not every time. Maybe I'll, I snuck that big victory in. But but the thing he said to me, though, after the match, he said, Lee, it never occurred to me that you would actually try to beat me. Wow. And just think about that psychology. That, you know, no one tried, you know, not no one, but Larry Owens tried to beat him, and guess what happened? He beat him. And if you study that match, which is a lot of, 
things written about it now. And if you've looked at all the things written about that match or the interview with Owings and the lead up to that match, did you ever focus on that and read anything about that? Yeah, I know that Larry Owings said that he was going to win and, and, uh, you know, no one said that kind of thing about Gable or to him or anything. And when Gable heard about it, it, it got in his head because like you said, he's a human being and, and they were already giving him the outstanding wrestler of the tournament and all this stuff, you know, before he had even they had even wrestled, and when then you know it's almost like when Mike Tyson got beat by Buster Douglas. I yep. I was in eighth grade, and I I told one of my friends, I go, man, I have a feeling that Tyson's not going to win this. People are just acting like it's going to be such a an easy thing, and and of course no one thought that was going to happen, but it did, you know, yep. because he wasn't scared of him. He wasn't scared of him, and you know what? He had to he had to dig deep because he got hit once. And I've there, there's a backstory to, to James Douglas's life too. Do you, do you know that backstory? I know his mom had had recently passed away, and when you've got motivation and you're not scared, you can do anything. Yep, and he talked about that. He talked about that. I don't know if you, you, so you know what I'm talking about. He he talked about that, and I don't know if he actually told his mom that, or he dedicated that fight to his mother, or whatever he did mentally. He he related it to this promise he made to his mom, whether it was something he just did on his own that he wanted to prove to her that he could be a champ, whatever, whatever it was, he got up. It's just like, just like when that, uh, that one recent heavyweight, um, who fought Fury or, um, this black boxer, not this other guy, like, he should have been knocked out, but he just got up all of a sudden. That's <laughs> just weird. And then he went in the fight. And you wonder what's in someone's head that it just goes beyond consciousness almost when you put yourself in that um, uh, place. Yeah. But, yeah. But that that's... Um, so, I... Like, my coach said, Lee, why... You know, my, my, co- my college coach wanted me to not wrestle him, really, because I was just... One of his star recruits, and he thought that that victory, you know, me getting smashed would affect me. And that happens to some wrestlers. You know, they go to college, and they, they're great on the high school level, and then they get smashed a few times, and then they're not the same. Right. And, um, but uh, I just wanted to, I just wanted to know. I just wanted to know. If it, I, wanted, I wanted him to whip me like that. Then that would have shown me that, hey, I, I've got... I've got a lot more. I've got a, I've got a lot more growing to do. You know, it would have been uh, to me. You know, what my coach said to me too, though. He this this came out in my documentary things that he said doing clubbing that I didn't he didn't say it to me, but he said it in in the interview on in my documentary. He said that he could tell that I came to I came to that match in the finals. Uh, how did he put it? Um, he said something to the effect that uh, he said, I noticed throughout the whole tournament that he was wearing just the Wisconsin singlet that we, you know, this, uh, the old, because it, it was an open tournament preseason, it was just the old gear we had, old, an old singlet. They didn't even have the, the Wisconsin W on it. But I showed up to the finals to the junior world singlet I had gotten a year that, that summer for making the junior world team. 
I, I had on, you know, I just, I wore my nice singlet, I guess is what I'm saying. Okay. I had something else on my mind. And it ne- wasn't necessarily winning, but I came there to win. There's a difference there. Absolutely. You have to show up with winning on your mind. You know, that's different than just showing up. And, uh, and, and, uh, my roommate at the time said something too in, in that, in an interview. He said that we were teasing Leroy that he was going to lose. And Lee looked at us and said, I'm not going to lose this match. I'm going to win this match. And I don't remember saying that, but I think I said it out of <laughs> anger, maybe. Yeah. Teased me so much, but still, you know, you have to be willing to put yourself in that moment of defiance, it happens throughout your entire life. Uh, it's like, and I, this is a little different level, but I can remember when I had some really bad things happen in my life, you know? I mean, you have to decide that, okay, I've, I'm tired of this. I don't want to take this anymore. I'm ready to make a change. I'm ready. It's like people that are in, you know, who have addictions, right? They never, you can't, you can put, you can be in the best treatment program in the world, but until you're ready, all the people that, that overcome addictions, they say the same thing. I finally got to a place where I just, I just didn't want it anymore. I need, I was ready, you know? And if you're able to put yourself there in things that you want to accomplish in life, that's when you become really powerful, really potent dangerous you don't have to say anything to anybody it to me i've often felt this is the it's the people that are the quiet silent types are the most dangerous people in the world yeah the people that have a quiet resolve calm and focused and gable to me was that way so i saw that in his personality too that was something i picked up in his personality People who had a lot of bravado, like like who didn't like Muhammad Ali, right? I mean, he was people hated him, but people loved him too. But people like Gable, and there are people like him, who have this quiet demeanor, quiet sense of strength, calm and focused. People uh, are very dangerous, and I and I became like that, calm and focused, and uh, no one no one knows what you're thinking then. I've, actually <laughs> when you're that way yeah so you're able to uh keep your thoughts to yourself like, like people people who are like very wealthy sometimes i appreciate the people that don't have to show it you know it's, they're not doing it to prove or show people they're they just do it because they're good and they they like what they're doing maybe or whatever yeah um social media now social media has changed all of us really you know um I can remember when Jordan Burroughs was just starting to get good. He won his first world title, and he had that handle, All I See is Gold. He was out there a lot, letting the world know that I want to be the best. I want to break John Smith's record. I mean, that was like, wow. That was pretty powerful. I was thinking the same thing, but I never said anything like that to anybody publicly. you know. So if I would have came along during social media, I might have done something. Some, I, I don't know, because I, 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 I'm pretty involved in social media now but i'm curious what you've done i I post things about myself and stuff like that i probably would have done that then too i just i don't know how i would have changed because 
we all want recognition for our, our effort. I mean, I mean, it's just human nature to want to have someone acknowledge that you are, that you have achieved something. And, um, but Jordan did it like no one else, man. He just, I was like, wow, I'm, I'm around him a little bit now. And I, I, I appreciate that because that puts a lot of pressure on you. And one thing that Muhammad Ali said too, is he did it because he backed himself into a corner then. He said, sometimes I look at myself in the mirror and I say, oh my God, what have I done? I'm, I'm going to be, people are not going to take me seriously anymore if I lose this fight, you know? Yeah. And think of the pressure you put on yourself when you when you do those kind of things. And Jordan put himself out there, man. He just, and he just kept winning. But yeah, but also when he lost, it takes, you're, you know, it's, it, he said this recently. He said, when you, when you have that as a goal, it just doesn't come from your physical talent. It comes from your emotions, your your everything that makes up who you are, your physical and spiritual being. And you can't separate the emotional part from it. So when he lost, he just couldn't handle that. And I that I, I, I just didn't know how to handle that when I saw him just falling apart like that. It was heartbreaking. Yeah, but, but now I get it, now that I know him, and he actually talked about it. Uh, so the winning is great, but if, you, if you're if you true true to your feelings, you can't turn that off. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of people that maybe would, would have done it in private, maybe, but he's such an open guy that he was... It's just like the scene, like, do you ever see your father cry kind of a thing, you know? Right. I'm not asking that as a question. I'm just saying that I didn't want my children to see that that in me or my when I was married, my wife, wife things like that. There's certain things about us as human beings, maybe males, where, where we grow up, our society. To be able to show that kind of emotion publicly is, is and I think the media took advantage of them too a little bit. If I was a someone who had a camera and I represented a media company, I would give that person some space. Right. Sure, it makes good media if I could put a camera in someone's face after they've had their worst disappointment. They're going to, they're going you know, but, but it all worked out because he's, he's true to who he is. And uh, I think his kids will see that and realize, you know, my dad's a, a real human being. I bet he's a very emotional feeling type of human being in his personal life. Which is a, a very authentic way to be in your life. Yeah, and I love the fact that he, you know, he he's pretty open about you know being nervous and having to calm himself down. And I remember watching one of his world championships where he was smiling the whole time because he had read in a book that when you smile and you're grateful and all that. How and he had already won three or four world titles. I mean, it's something that um, you know, it's something you have to constantly remind yourself of, and and uh, that's something I love about him. Yeah. You know, he, he just continually amazes me. And he set out at the beginning of when he got married, he wanted a big family. Guess what? He's got a big family. And he's still a young man. I was just with him. And he travels with, he was with his son recently, too. And and he was with um, Nate Jackson, who also has a big family. You know, and they were talking amongst themselves. It's amazing. You get married people with big families around each other. And they started talking about stories about, you know, Maybe their kids, and which is always awesome. But I think they both want to have more kids, which is cool. And it, um, 
it, but it's all intentional. Back to intention again. You know, I guess it could happen not by accident, but sometimes people have big families and they really didn't plan it, whatever. But, but he's intentional. He's intentional about his winning. He's intentional about things he does in his life, like his family. And uh, he wants his kids to, to understand what hard work is. Like I just saw the recent post he made. He took his family to the Olympic Training Center in the final phases of his training. And they got up at 5 in the morning and they, you know, part of his workout was to hike up to the top of uh, one of whatever the workouts he had. But his family did it too. You know, and that's pretty cool. Yeah. Intentional with his life. And, and I think that's something that we miss a lot. We miss the, the, uh, we miss the intentions of life. You know, like, how can I be intentional about what it is that I'm trying to do? And when people see that you are intentional, they immediately criticize right down to the kids. I remember I know Nate Carr, you know, uh, Nate Carr is from a family of like over 18 children, you know. I love Nate Carr. Or, or is it 11? I don't know. It's a lot, right? It's, it's, but it's a lot of kids. I, I, I remember four of the older brothers, like Fletcher, I remember Fletcher. Uh, Joe Carr, I wrestled him several times. Jimmy Carr, he and I are around the same age. And then Nate, I remember those four of the, the ones that I know, but then there were others. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's intention when you decide to want to have that many children, you know. And, and Nate has six or seven children. And I remember I got to be friends with Nate, and that was very intentional, you know. And Jordan may have another child. I think, well, he said he would, they wanted to, so you may see another one. Maybe five boroughs. When, when you think about five kids, you've all grown a car now. Yeah. Man. I mean, you really can't see everybody almost, you know, in a vehicle. I remember when I had three, and I was very intentional about wanting to have children, too. Uh, I ended up with three before, before you know, before my life went, took a turn. But, um, I, but I knew I wanted to have kids, and I'm so blessed that I do have these three. Um, but that wouldn't happen if I wasn't intentional about it, because... It was not a happy marriage. So a lot of people would have just just cashed in their chips and went a different direction sooner. But I, I just wanted these kids, you know, and part of that. And I thought maybe it would work. And But without the intention ahead of time, it never would have worked that way. And yeah. now I look back and I'm kind of... Because I was older and I got married anyway. So it would have... My intention of wanting to have kids were stronger than the the bad marriage I was in, you know? So, um, yeah, I've only got one kid and I, it, it, you know, bef- I tell people this all the time before we had him and I would ask people about it. They would go, it's a lot of work. And in my head I thought, well, how much work can it be? You know? And then you have one, you're like, Holy Lord. It's a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um, you know, and especially maybe I'd be better off if I had more than one cause he'd have somebody to play with. But, you know, he doesn't understand. He's just like, you know, wake up. You know, he'll wake me up at four o'clock in the morning and be like, "Sing to me." I'm like, "I'm not a jukebox, dude. I'm trying to sleep." <laughs> you know. Um, I, I also wanted to ask you, what is your memory of the match against Chuck Yagla? That was was that the last match you that was the last match you lost in college, correct? Yes. Well, no, I take that back. I my junior year. In the Northern Open again, it's funny, the, the year after I beat Gable, right, my sophomore year, my junior year, 
I got beat in the finals by Pete Galea. He he had graduated by then. So so the distinction can be made that it wasn't a collegiate loss. You know, Pete had graduated the year before, so it was a a loss in college, but it wasn't a college collegiate loss. So so um, I take pride in the fact that I didn't lose a collegiate match after that loss to Diego in my freshman year. I was 110 uh, one tie and one loss after that loss to Yegla. And the one tie was a collegiate tie against uh, Kelly Ward in the All-Star match. But, um... Does the All-Star match can, can count against your official record? You know what? Uh, there's, like, currently, today, I think, to get people to wrestle in the All-Star match, they don't count it. Because a lot of wrestlers, uh, a lot of All-Star matches people wanted to see like Kyle Dake and David Taylor, but these wrestlers didn't want to risk that over a match that really didn't mean anything, you know? So they, they made it like, okay, it's an exhibition kind of a thing. So I'm not sure what the status of those matches are now. Um, but in my era, um, I counted as a collegiate loss or a collegiate tie, but it's not a loss. So, um, I still feel, like it's an honest representation that it's a you know I didn't lose so I didn't have a loss a collegiate loss after my freshman year. And that match came down to a basically a referee's decision, right? Which isn't even a thing anymore. But yeah, they don't do that today, as you know. Yeah, they it was three officials, and I scored the only takedown of the match. The score was four to four. The score was four to three regulation. I was winning, and but Chuck had riding time. And so the score was tied, and then over time it was zero zero, which I, I, I mean the, the match was close, but the criteria they have today, I, I would have won the match just on the fact that I scored the only takedown. But um, and and I was more active in the match too, but but that drove me though. But then then I I wrestled Chuck the next year in the All Star match. Oh. Back to the All-Star match. Now, this would have probably counted. Well, back then, we were counting the All-Star match in collegiate records. So my sophomore year, uh, I was wrestling in 158. Chuck was a senior. He was at 150. So I cut to 150 to wrestle him in the All-Star match because I wanted to wrestle him. I beat him 10 to 4 in that match. Awesome. So I, so I was kind of uh, wanting revenge, I guess. You, you need things to motivate you, and that was a huge motivator for me. Sure. To want to feel like I was better than him, you know. Um, yeah, I had him on, and he said some nice things about you, but I can't, I can't imagine it coming down to that. And do, do you remember how you felt? Were you pretty upset about it, like after that loss in the finals? You know, I, I, I felt it was close. It was as close as it possibly could be. One official did vote for me. So it was a split referee's decision. So of the three officials that voted, one voted for me, the other two voted for Chuck. So it couldn't have been any closer. Uh, it could have gone my way, and, and people would have been, I'm sure the Iowa camp would have been mad. But if you look at the body language of Dan Gable after the match, he doesn't look like he thought Chuck won. Huh. Actually, You know, if you look at the body language, Chuck really didn't look like he thought he won either. Um and uh, we both retired, but it, it it was close. 
It was close. I mean, I had some overtime matches that I won. In fact, my freshman year, that same year, I wrestled Chuck in the finals, but the very first match of the national tournament that year, I won on a referee's decision in overtime. Oh, wow. So if that would have gone the other way, I wouldn't have been in the finals, obviously. So um, I happened to think I won that match in overtime. It was all three officials voted for me. It was a unanimous decision in overtime, but... Um, but still, what if they didn't? Yeah. You know, and it would have been over. I, that would have had no recourse. I just had to get my butt back in the wrestlebacks. But uh, I thought I out-wrestled, but the match was close. It was like 4-4 four to four and then 0-0. Zero, zero. So how do, you, how do you score that, you know? Yeah. So I, I was happy I won it, though, of course. <laughs> Yeah, I remember when they had uh, those, those uh, you know, even in kids wrestling, when I was starting out, they had the referee's decision. And I made it to the state semifinals one year without scoring one legitimate point. I won a 0-0 zero to zero match off a referee's decision, and I won 1-0 to zero on a penalty point. And, I, <laughs> and my coaches that night were like, do you realize you're in the state semifinals and you haven't scored a point yet? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> well, no one, 10 years from now, no one's going to care. Yeah. <laughs> in your mind if you had no foresight to think like that. Yeah. Um, who did you defeat for your three NCAA titles? Um, the first year, in my sophomore year, it was a guy named Tom Brown from University of Washington. Really not a wrestling power back then, but um, Les Anderson was the head coach of that team back then, and Les was the longtime assistant for Iowa State. And Tom Brown, actually, since we talked about Yegla, um, Tom Brown had beaten Chuck Yegla to take third in the NC tournament um, the year before that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The year. Yeah. The 1970. Well, let me see. My freshman year that was uh, 1975 NCAA tournament. So the 1974 NCAA tournament, um, Chuck had taken fourth that year. Yeah, and he lost to Tom Brown from Washington, and Tom Brown redshirted. My freshman year, and then my sophomore year, he wrestled his senior year, and that's why I beat him in the finals. Tom Brown from Washington that year, and then my junior and senior year it was Kelly Ward from Iowa State. Okay. Was was there one any any of those three that can you point to one that was the most difficult to win? Um. You know, um, I, I Tom Brown was I, I wrestling him. It, he had a style, it would be like wrestling somebody who you could feel is a little bit loose and flexible and tricky, kind of. You don't really know how good they are, really, because he, he retroed the year, the year before that. Now, two years ago, when he beat Chuck to take third, he was on the scene and, you know, he was good and all that. But then, and actually, they traded victories. Chuck beat him in the quarterfinals. And Chuck got beat by Jared Hubbard, and then, so then in the rest, for third and fourth, Tom Brown came back to beat Chuck. They're both big, lopsided scores. Chuck beat him in the quarters by, I don't know, by eight points. And then Tom Brown came back and beat Chuck for third and fourth by a bunch of points, like eight or nine points. So, but then he redshirted, so he wasn't there. But when I wrestled, he felt really wiry. I tried this one move that I normally worked on people, and he almost took me down. I, I felt nervous about that. It was the finals. I was trying to get my first national title. So the whole match, I wrestled. I just didn't know. I just 
So sometimes that fear makes a match tough. Not, you know, and he was, he was a tough writer and he rode me for a while, had a hard time getting away. So I, I, I just kind of realized he was just one of these weird kind of guys. Now, Chuck, now, Kelly Ward was just tough. He was more of a traditional wrestler. Hard nose, tough, just shot nor- normal stuff. So I could deal with guys like that. It was not necessarily hard. Like I, I was beating him eight to one with like thirty seconds left, and scoring to being ten to eight. Wow! So I understand as a coach what happens when you quit wrestling. Sometimes, yeah, you quit wrestling and your your opponent doesn't against a guy like Kelly Ward. You, you could lose, you know. And the official got involved in the match a little bit too. I think the official be a hero officiating the match where Lee Kemp got upset really because he was talking to me during the match it was like it bothered me I was beating this guy in fact Kelly told me he was pinned and and so the rest of the match I was kind of had that in my mind a little bit but I was winning comfortably and my style unfortunately was I I would kind of stop wrestling if I was ahead and I was going to win the match and typically, I could hold and beat a guy, and they can't score me. But Kelly starts scoring on me. It was really weird. So to his credit, you should interview him on the show and see what he says about the match. Okay. But to, but to his credit, man, the guy, he starts scoring on me. And I, it freaked me out that he starts scoring on me. I had never been scoring like that before. So that combined with this official getting on my case, calling me for stalling, Kelly took me down twice within about a 30 second period, which was, it freaked me completely out. Yeah. I just, one was off of my shot, but still, you know, I, I just never got scored on. Like he took me down and he smartly let me go because <clears throat> he could see the momentum shifting. Yeah. Then the official called me for stalling because the official saw something happening. And that official, well, I wouldn't say he was egging it on, but I think he was sort of. Mm-hmm. So I got called for stalling within about ten seconds because he. That's why I shot <clears throat> a bad shot, and he took me down again. And I'm thinking, oh my god, this is crazy. What's happening here? I mean, it was just a blur. And at the end of the match, he has he has me in an armbar trying to turn me. As the buzzer goes off, <clears throat> had he turned me, I would have lost. Yeah. So. Um, you know, it's just weird. Uh, and then he went on to win the national title the next year. But, yeah, Kelly was a three-time finalist. <clears throat> okay. Yeah, I would love to talk to him. Or me. What's that? Either he was going to be a three-time national champion or me. Okay. Because I, I wrestled him twice, two years in a row in the national finals. Yeah. Had, I, he, had he beat me, he'd be a three-time national champion. Yeah, I, I can't remember if I if I read you saying something that, about that about you know you get ahead and then kind of stop not necessarily stop wrestling but you know slow down a lot and uh, I obviously wasn't anywhere near as good as you but I was very much the same way. Um, my coaches would get so frustrated, you know. Sometimes I would beat a guy ranked second in the state by one point, and then I'd beat some scrub by the same score, and they'd be like, "Why do you do that?" I'm like, "I don't know." People <laughs> tried to get me out of that. And he, he, they were absolutely right. I, 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 I just relied on my, and maybe that's where athleticism comes in. Maybe I, I felt I was strong enough. I didn't get out of position enough. I was in great shape. I could hold a one point lead if I had to. Not, not that that's just exactly what I wanted to do, 
But sometimes guys just they they were conservative as well, and they were able to uh, they were able to you know to keep matches close as well. You know, so uh, so when you have two guys with that mindset, it could be a, it could be a tough match, especially if they're. But that that wasn't Kelly's point. Kelly tried to open up. Kelly tried to to break matches open. You know, he was he was open that way. I could always keep matches. If I had to, could keep them close. But boy, that that match, man. Yeah. He. Um, <clears throat> it was a great learning experience for me, actually. Yeah, I was great at holding a lead. I wasn't. I wasn't a comeback wrestler at all. But if I got a lead, I was usually going to win. Um, that's how I personally was. I wanted to ask you about um, the 1980 Olympics. Uh, how long, if ever, you it took to get over what happened to you? Because you know, just like Chris Campbell, that he he told me that that it upset him so much because it 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 screwed up his legacy as far as you know. He was obviously a, a world champion, and and every, everyone in the wrestling community knows how great he was. Um, but the average person might not know. Um, so anyway, what's your what's your story on on that? The same thing. It, it took me. I'm still not over it, really. I mean, it's. I tell people it's like a death in the family, right? It, you know, hopefully you could go on. And most people do go on and live their life. And, you know, God forbid, who wants to go through a death of a loved one, a spouse, kids, whatever. Parents is a little different because, you know, they've lived their life, especially if they're older. It hurts, but, you know, you feel like, okay, they lived their life, they're 80. But, but man, when you have one of those hard-to-swallow deaths, you know, a child, a spouse, whatever, right in the time and just horrible things like that, you never get over it. But you learn to live with it, and that's how I would explain it. Yeah, I've I've, I've learned to obviously live with it. Uh, you you really don't get over it. Um, uh, Chris is absolutely right. Uh, Chris was positioned. He'd worked so hard to be in that position, to be where he was at. He worked so hard for that. And um, the next year, he won the worlds. That's just how ready he was. Mm-hmm. The next year in 81, I didn't. I took third. I didn't wrestle that well after 1980. He had still had something to prove in his career. He, he won that world championship and was voted the most technically superior wrestler in the whole tournament. <laughs> and which people don't even know. That, that's one hell of, a, of, a, of an acknowledgement. Yeah. That they acknowledged. I don't know if he told you that or not, but I don't think he, he told me that. But I know he got. I know he got a bronze at thirty-seven. Yeah, he did. But the year in eighty-one when he won, in nineteen eighty-one, he won that bronze in nineteen ninety-two. So in in nineteen eighty-one, he was voted the most technically superior wrestler in the tournament. Wow, uh, that's 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 impressive, man. That's yeah. He and for a big wrestler too. On top of that, um, uh, just amazing. Yeah, just amazing. Um, just amazing. So your three world titles did they come before the eighty Olympics or or were some of them after? Two two were before. I won the worlds in nineteen seventy eight and nineteen seventy nine, which made it tougher because I was on that roll. <clears throat> yeah, 
into 1980, and I, and I won the World Cup in 80. USA beat the Russians in the World Cup in 1980. That's before, you know, it was in the, it was in the spring. Before the boycott was really imminent, you know. So, uh, uh, so yeah, it, it was, wow. <laughs> it, it was unbelievable. I still can't believe that that happened. It's just hard to imagine that that would be taken away from our athletes when there's not a war going on. Like in Nazi Germany, they had the Olympics, you know? Right. And uh, I always rested in the, the knowledge that, well, they had the Olympics in Nazi Germany, so they're not going to boycott this. They're just bluffing. Yeah. And Gable, Gable was our coach, and he told us, don't look at the news, just keep training. And so I just believed that we were going to go until we didn't. And it was tough. But I, I was fortunate that I did have a chance to compete in four world championships. And Chris... If Chris didn't come back and wrestle after that, I think he would be really, I mean, it would hurt more. Yeah. But the fact that he did, he, he followed his dream. He to, to, to come back when he did, the age he did, very tough. Yeah. Wow. And a big credit to both of you that you were able to both come back and win world titles after that boycott because... I mean, I can't imagine, you know, how tough that is mentally. Just, you know, kind of like what happened to Kerry Colad. I mean, they screwed him four years in a row, and finally he was like, you know, he was done, and he was still so great, you know. Um, so yeah. God, God bless both of you that you were able to yeah. come back and win world titles. Yeah, that, that story is is heart wrenching, really. Yeah, it's heart wrenching. Wow. Um, what is that? What is? Can you put into words what that feels like to? to be a world champion and and this is kind of a long question but when you when you can wrestle as well as you as you were able to and probably still can is that kind of like having a superpower <laughs> I would say it's a gift that if if I did to think about the the real blessings that I've had in life it, it was to be able to experience being you know really good at something you know or great at something to have to have something that I was able to do that I could uh, be be the best at and enjoy at the same time but to be the best at so it is a unique thing not everyone can find something that they can be the best at some people do things they're good at it but but when you see you see it in, in the entertainment industry sometimes with some they just somebody's just good musically or like uh, whether they're playing an instrument or whether they are just an entertainer or just a natural actor you know they may work hard but they're just good they're just very good what you just name the actor that you like you can just say that and you sports same thing I was able to find it. Had I not find if I, if I did not find wrestling, I'd be the same guy sitting here, God willing, if I'm still living. But I'd be here. But I would not have that in my memory of that experience because I think you go through the same mental uh, gratification that anyone goes through when they're good at something. Yeah. And so I feel blessed that I had that uh, opportunity, and then to be around other great athletes like Chris Campbell. 
like Chuck Yeagle. Chuck, Chuck's a guy, I look at Chuck as a guy that has great mental toughness, man. I mean, each, each of his senior, his junior and senior years, the years he should have been just, just reveling in all of his hard work and his national titles, which he didn't win those two titles his last two years. Mm-hmm. He gets beat by a freshman in his junior year, which is me. <laughs> it gets beat by a freshman. You think, what the heck? <laughs> comes back, comes back to beat me, you know? Uh, he beat me three times in a row after that, you know, the last one being a freshman decision still. But then his senior year, he's like, okay, now I'm, he gets beat by Mark Trella as a freshman. So he comes back and dominates him, Mark Trella, in the dual meet. And then in the, um, I don't know if he dominated him in the dual meet, but he beat him. But then in the Big Ten finals, he dominated him, 7-1. to one, And then he ended up wins his second title. I mean, through his whole career, it's been that way. You know, he he's good, great actually, but he had to dig down and go to higher levels to just stay better than the competition. The competition, they were just rapidly getting better around him, and he just had to keep keep climbing the run, and he kept doing that. And then, you know, he makes the Olympic team. The year he made the Olympic team, as all of us, he might have won that just the way Chuck is, the way I saw him develop as an athlete. It hurt a lot of us, Chuck, Chris, myself. Um, I was happy to say that he, he cut to 50 because he couldn't beat me because either either he or me were going to be down at 150, and I'm glad it was him at 49. <laughs> you know, he, he had to cut all the weight to make it, but uh, he was tough, man. In fact, he, he weighed more than me in practice because he made the 79 world team at 150. You know, and then when it came down to the final cut, he had to make weight. I think that was hard on him. He had to focus on that more than wrestling. But but he did it. And he, he lost to a Bulgarian in the 79 worlds that placed very high. And so I think he was, you know, he was positioned to do very well in 1980. Chuck was very mentally tough, very disciplined. He would have been there ready. And at 150, man, that guy was hard to beat. Yeah. At 150. And yep. so it, 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 took, it took that chance away from him as well, you know. Yeah, 163 has to be, at least of the modern era, the most successful weight class, at least I would think, for the USA. I mean, you've got yourself and Dave Schultz and Kenny Monday and Wade Chalice, who he didn't, you know, he he won a university world title. Um, Jordan Burroughs, Kyle Dake. I mean, you know, and then you've got a ton of guys now that may never make the team at that weight, but holy man, they're so great. And I think it's a travesty that they've cut it down to six weight classes. I mean, think how many great guys that'll never be able to make a world or, or maybe a world team, but not an Olympic team because they don't have a weight class. It just, it's kind of, it's stupid. It's really stupid, you know, and, and they've taken away the, the sport from the smallest guy and the biggest guy, you know, like there's no 105 or 114 anymore. And there's a lot of little guys that are great wrestlers and a lot of huge guys that they've taken the sport away from. There's never, there's never going to be a Chris Taylor again. Uh, yeah, that bothers me too because out of all the years I wrestled, there always was a there wasn't as many entrants at 105, but there was always a full. I mean, at the World Championships, there was 20 guys there, you know, in the weight class. <laughs> you know, there, there might be 25 or 30 in the higher weights, but there were always 
entries at 105. America always had entries from Bobby Weaver to to Billy Rosado. I mean, to you know, you name it. There was Jim Haynes, a teammate at Wisconsin. He was a 114 pound uh, Olympic silver or world silver medalist. He was, you know, there was always people there. I just don't, I just don't know. I just don't know why and how they did that. I don't understand that. Yeah, my wife was uh, really good at badminton, and, and her dad, her, her dad was. Uh, he said it basically comes get comes down to bed space, and I'm like, well, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my whole life. <laughs> you know, like for the Olympics. Yes. Something like that. He was he was into the 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 uh, bureaucracy side of it, and. Uh, Anyway, it's just a shame that they get involved with that stuff. Was there one of your world titles? I mean, you know, I, I imagine they were all pretty important to you, but um, do you remember one more than the other? Yeah, my, my third one. Because I talked about Jordan Burroughs a lot in this conversation, and uh, he made it very clear he wanted to be, you know, the guy who was the most accomplished ever, you know, and however you want to term that, you can call it the GOAT or whatever. Uh, I had that same feeling, although I never said it because there was no social media back then but that's how I felt so when I won that third title I was the most accomplished guy ever so it's like Jordan Burroughs wanting to win this next world title coming up because now he what else has many well no then two and I have three no one uh, talked about it in that, in that vernacular as they do now in fact, when I won my third title, they said I was the first three-time world champion, which never made sense to me. Like, So that means if someone wins four, then they're the first four-timer and the first five-timer or whatever. I mean, it just didn't make sense to me at that time, you know, because I retired then. And so, but but for eight years, I was the most accomplished wrestler until John Smith won his fourth, fourth world title. So I guess the third world title was the thing that separated me from everyone. And that was my goal, like just like Jordan Burroughs. I wanted to, I wanted to separate myself and and what I accomplished from everyone else, not from a sense of arrogance, but just from a sense of an accomplishment. Yeah, I just felt that it was something that no one else had ever accomplished before. So I I, I felt I'm the most proud about that. Did you? It's not talked about in that way, but that's okay. Uh, yeah, did did you try out in 1984? Yeah, I got beat by David Schultz. Okay. Yeah, I got I got down to the final, the final, you know, the final, final wrestle up procedures and all that kind of stuff. But I got beat by Dave, and I I beat Dave 14 times in my career. I wrestled him 14 times and beat him 10. I didn't lose to him until after the boycott, until what? after 80. So I lost to him once in 1983, and then twice in 84 to lose for a total of four months four times so I beat him the first ten okay um, is there one guy you can point to that's the toughest you've ever wrestled whether it be practice or otherwise you know the Russians were always tough I don't say any Russian you know they all were tough they all were tough I'd say um, you know the first world championship in 1978 and, and that's another accomplishment that I'm proud of, too. I was the youngest American world champion at that time in 1978. And if you want to call that a record, being the youngest, that, I held that for 21 years, or 30 years, actually. It took 30 years 
until Kyle Snyder won the Worlds at 19 years old in 2015. I was at that one. Yeah, yeah. So he, he became the youngest world champion. But when that happened, no one said. They, they said he was the youngest, but they never said who, who he beat to become the youngest. So um, some of those things that serve as markers in your achievements never get talked about. But to me, that's one that I think was important. So, um, but yeah, so, to, but, to, but to win that title, that first title had to be a Russian, a veteran Russian, just like Snyder. When he won his first title, he beat this Iranian that was a defending world champion. He was a guy who was a veteran. It was an easy match. He beat a really good guy, you know, and this Russian was a guy that, that was pretty good that I beat. And I beat him only because of nine-minute matches. Nice. Because I, Gable was the coach. He got us great shape, and I was able to outcondition this guy to win, to, win, to win the world title. What kind of stuff did he make you guys do? Uh, we used to carry guys in our backs and run with them that way. It makes it real difficult. Makes your hips and legs strong. We used to go up and down stairs with people on our backs. We, we'd... Um, do a lot of live wrestling back then, um, a lot more than we do now, which makes sense. You don't need to live wrestle as much. That just beats your body up, but yeah. Um, but we did a lot of live wrestling, um, a lot of calisthenic type stuff. Uh, you know, uh, nothing unusual. Uh, we, we, you know, we, we looked at weights too. Um, what 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 loss in your career was the toughest to deal with? Um, I'd say losing the Schultz and not making the Olympic team because uh, if anybody was going to be an Olympic champion, it's going to be me. It was something I framed my whole life around, and a guy I had beaten my whole career, you know. Even ten times, the whole, you know, all that. But um, just, you know, it was almost like unbelievable to me that I, you know, not that he wasn't good. I mean, he was very good. Right. But. Um, well, on the flip side of that, can you point to of, of all the you know you, you know you won hundreds of matches, but is there one that stands out as your best victory or your favorite or? Uh, I think the, the victories that come with great struggle, like my f- first year winning the world title, that was a, you know, and actually to, to make the team was a struggle because I I had to wrestle up the ladder. If you're familiar with the ladder system, how they do the ladder, you have the mini tournament, and then you wrestle up the ladder. I had to do that to make that team because I was finishing my senior year of college and I didn't go to the world team trials, but I got I went to the camp and went to the mini tournament and I had to wrestle my way up the ladder. That was uh, nine matches in four days, beating the best guys in our country just to make the team. It had to be in the best two out of three matches, from Schultz to Yegla to uh, Mark Trello. And then I made the team. And so um, then to win the Worlds, then after all those matches in the World Championships, I think there were seven matches or something like that. So... 
Yeah, the, the average person has no idea how difficult it is to make a, a team like that. I remember I was a state champ my senior year of high school, and I remember my cousin saying, you should try it for the Olympics. I bet you'd make it. And I remember being like, I appreciate what you think you're saying right now. <laughs> um, but that that's that's I couldn't score a point on those guys to save my life, you know. Um, there are there are levels to it. And speaking of that, um, besides yourself, because you know, I consider you one of the best to ever do it. Um, who's the best you've ever seen, in your opinion? A Russian named um, Vladimir Yuman. Okay. He was he was like he's probably a, just a tad bit older than Belglazov, but Sergey. And Anatoly, the name that you might remember from the mind. Uh, and then Satyev is most recently probably the, the goat of all of wrestling, uh, Satyev. But in my era, this guy, Vladimir Yuman, was amazingly talented wrestler. Um, amazingly talented. Okay. I'm glad I asked you that because I, I've never I've never heard that name, and I'm kind of a wrestling nerd. Um, Vladimir Yuman. Okay. Yeah, and there's not much on him because there wasn't a lot of video back then, so you probably won't see very much very much video. In fact, if you get a chance to interview Sergey Belogazov, and maybe on social media, you should ask him through a DM, like, um, like how good was Vladimir Yuman? Lee Kim thinks he was one of the best what wrestlers. Next to you, he thinks, <laughs> he thinks Vladimir was one of the best wrestlers ever that he saw. And see what see what Sergey says about him. Okay, I'd be, I'd, be, I'd be curious to see what Sergey would say. Just make sure you say next to you, Sergey. Lee Kim thinks Vladimir Yuman was one of the best wrestlers he ever saw wrestle. Yeah. Um, what what makes the Russians so great? I mean, if you can briefly summarize, it's important, it's important to them. Just like it's important, uh, it changes their lifestyle. If you become a good athlete. Um, it's just important to the to the culture to the country. It's just it's important, very important. And so they have great instruction early on. When kids are young, they start to groom them. Not necessarily from a competitive standpoint. Like at the at the at the cadet level, we beat Russians a lot of times. Why? Because we put a lot of emphasis on having eight-year-olds become world champions or nine-year-olds, you know, whatever, 12-year-olds become world champions, where they don't put, they put emphasis on becoming senior world champions. Yeah. So we, as you know, we have five-year-olds wrestling here in the United States. They're going to Tulsa Nationals and this and that. And yeah, they're tough. But they, they all fall by the wayside when it comes time to get in high school. You know, it's hard to... The Russians take that young talent and they let them just have fun with it and they learn skills for about the first 10 years of wrestling with very little competition so that the, the best russians aren't in the, the cadets and all that stuff they don't really care about that but then when they get to be 13 14 they start to identify the ones that could be really good they have like can you imagine like there's video surfacing on the internet showing sajalav getting pinned in his first cadet tournament did, what? did you see that I haven't seen it, no. Yeah. Sajalayev, the guy who beats uh, Snyder now, that way, the Russian tank, they call him. And he's just, the guy is just... Yeah. Well, when he's, 
when he was starting out at the cadet level, he gets pinned in his toughest, his, one of his first matches. He looked aggressive, but he just got caught in his back and got, got pinned. But now you, you put a couple more years onto him. Now, even though Snyder didn't beat him that first time, uh, it'd be, it'd be hard for that to happen again. But, um, so they, they just identify talent, keep the pressure of competition away from them, let them see the benefits of if they become a good wrestler, how their life will change financially. And then you just let them go. And, um, they start, you know, then those great wrestlers with great, because you can identify, you see a 12 year old, you could say, man, that guy, that kid could be really good. Yeah. Just by the way they move, just the way that their fluidity of motion and all that stuff. And then you start understanding, oh, that's their psyche. Oh, this guy's up too. And then, then you start saying, okay, out of the 20 guys in the room that I've identified, these five could be really good. And those five go into the Russian national training program. And that's how they do it over there. Okay. Um, <clears throat> well, I won't keep you on here all day, but I did have a couple more questions if you have time for it. Um, first of all, what's your, what's your... I have a friend who just passed away just a couple days ago, and, and he's got a son who's going to be a senior in high school. And, and I, I sent him a message, and I basically was like, I know like wrestling is the last thing you're thinking about right now and, and all that, but you... you you're kind of at a crossroads, like you can let this destroy you or you can help it propel you to be the best version of yourself. And I, I, I have so much respect for you that I would love to hear your advice on how to deal with setbacks and loss and disappointments in life in a nutshell. That's a great question. In fact, that's the topic I speak on when I, when I do keynote speeches and I use the Olympics as just one of the key things I lost out on. And, uh, and some other things in life that I pointed to. But anyway, the, the first thing is acceptance. You have to accept it because uh, for it, from 1980, it took until like 2008 for me to finally accept the fact that I didn't get to go to the Olympic Games. And that sounds crazy almost. And you say, what do you mean accept it? And I frame it this way. Um, if I gave you a gift and you didn't accept the gift, then whose gift is it? Yeah. Uh, always pause a little bit. Let you think about that a little bit. Uh, if I gave you a gift and you didn't accept it, then whose gift is it? And just think about that gift could be an apology. Think about it that way. So if I really wronged you, let's just say, I mean, I really wronged you. I did I mean, horrible. But then, and you know, you rightfully so didn't like it. And, you know, and we were at odds with each other. And if I came to apologize and think about that apology as a gift. If I came to apologize and you didn't accept it, then whose gift is it? And what if that gift, that apology, was really going to be the gift, the thing that was going to lift the burden off you? And we all know that when you carry hate or some wrong, it 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 it, it eats at you. It eats your heart. And and typically, when you apologize, you you take that burden off of you. And now on the other person, the person receiving that apology, if they can't forgive, guess what? They hold on to that anger themselves. So they're still being eaten up. So 
it goes kind of both ways. So, like, if I gave you an apology and you didn't accept it, then you missed that opportunity for that gift. So, so I'm framing it to say that I couldn't, I couldn't forgive myself. It's almost like I felt there was something I did wrong to make that happen. And we all do this. You think that some bad thing happened to you because of maybe something you did in your past. Maybe you know, your mind thinks of all kinds of stuff. And so when I finally was able to forgive myself and see it as a gift, and for a lot of years I stayed from two, from 1980 to about 2008, I stayed away from wrestling actually, or 2006. That was something I really enjoyed doing. I loved being wrestling, but I, but I just, I just felt so betrayed. Yeah. That I, but I couldn't, I couldn't forgive. It's like um, it, you, you can, you can think of lots of things in like that way. Your lover, your spouse could betray you, right? And you hear these stories. If the person that got betrayed, if they can forgive them, truly forgive them, then you can both of you can move on. And there are a lot of situations where that happens. But if one person can't person that got betrayed can't forgive really forgive then it never works and they harbor that for the rest of their life and harboring something like that is never good so um you have to accept it and there's a process to accepting things and part of it might be um i think that's why we you know um it's like facing your fears sort of you know like I couldn't face the fact that I had lost and I hadn't that I didn't become an Olympic champion. Once I started to not embrace it, but I started to get back around wrestling, I was almost like I was embarrassed. So back to the original point that you made, I think you have to accept it that it happened and realize that you have to move on. Uh, you don't have to like it, but you have to accept it. Like there's different ways that you learn to accept things. Um, and that's a whole nother discussion. And for me, it was getting back around it, getting back around wrestling. So in this case of your friend, you have to get back around the thing that you lost. And if it's a person, a human being, then there's this the the circle that was around that human being. You have to kind of, um, you have to keep them in, in your memory. It seems like uh, it might be painful, but, but that pain is the thing that allows you to know that you're alive really to know that i felt i'm framing it the way i framed it in wrestling it was painful for me to go on wrestling okay that's how i framed it in my mind it was painful like i didn't want to be around wrestling when i was around other olympic champions it bothered me that i was an olympic champion and that went on for years a lot of years until finally i was able to let that go i remember being around some olympic champions at a function once and uh, someone wanted to take us some, some photographs and, and, uh, I was staying around all these guys that I knew. And so, Hey, let's take a photograph. So I start moving toward them to get in the photograph. And this guy said, Oh, just, just see Olympic champions. I just want the Olympic champions in the photograph. And I thought, wow, I'm Olympic champion. I felt, and he could see, I felt really bad about it. I said, Oh, no, that's okay. You, you, you could come. And that was a, that helped me understand it. That's reality. That's truth. That's I, I started accepting it, and I genuinely at that moment accepted it. Like you know, he's right. I, why am I, I? I really do like wrestling. 
Yeah. And it's like uh, Kyle Snyder. I asked him the question, like, how did he come back from being pinned in the national title? Tough question to ask him. But I wanted to, I just wanted to know what goes on in a person's, a champion's mind. And uh, I actually interviewed him when I did I did it on film, too, on video, because I thought it was so important for young wrestlers to see that. Mm-hmm. A great champion like him, how does he, he didn't know I was even going to ask that question. And uh, I said, I'm going to ask you a really tough question on film. Can I film you when I ask you a question? He said, surely. And I asked him a question. He said, oh, he looked at me like, oh, man, I can't <laughs> Well, he said, he said uh, it hurt bad. He said, I, I you know, it's not by I wanted to quit wrestling, but I just I just couldn't be around wrestling. I hated it. I hated the power I was feeling inside. And for about two or three weeks, I realized I missed it. It finally dawned on me. I missed wrestling. Yeah. It didn't, you know, I just wasn't thinking about the fact that I got pinned in the national finals in front of the whole world. The fact is I miss wrestling. I really miss wrestling. So in those different examples, that's how I got over it. I missed wrestling. And in your friend's case, I mean, it's okay to miss someone that you love. I mean, we feel like that makes it more difficult. I think it's more difficult if you try to forget. Yeah. And you try to you try to pretend that it didn't not that it didn't happen, but just try to you try to fake it, pretend like it doesn't bother you. Like Jordan Pearl's crying on camera. I thought that was the worst thing in the world that he did. But after getting to know him, he's authentic with his feelings. If you feel, and I, I know people have gone through things like that, and they cry sometimes after many, many years. And I think to myself, that's horrible. They're still crying over this thing. No, it's healthy because you're let you're you're being authentic. Yeah, it's all part of being a human being. It's all part of being like if one of you know if one of my children ever passed away, God forbid, oh, it'd be horrible. But I mean, I have to embrace the memories that we had, and I have to live that. I have to, I have to, I have to, I have, I have to accept it. You know, I have to figure out a way to know that that's life, and and um, those are the hard truths of lives, really, of life. We hope we don't have to go through it, but but you know, people have gone through it. I know people have gone through it. People are going through it every single day. Yeah. And and or people that are handicapped, like like Ricky Stewart. I mean, you know that name, right? I don't know he was a great Oklahoma State wrestler. He went. He's going through. A horrible hardship right now in his life. Do, do you know Ricky Stewart or of him? I know the name, yes, sir. Yeah, he went through, you know, two-time national champion, three-time finals, whole bit. He was in a, an accident where he got burned severely and through the infections, he lost a leg, lost part of his leg, and he's still recovering, and blah, 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 and his whole life, it's just, you think, wow. But his daughter is... Uh, really been letting his, the wrestling world know, you know, keeping up with him. So I keep up with it by watching her posts, you know. And there's no bitterness, and he doesn't nothing that he said that I could see. Yeah, you know, you just it, it, you just have to move on. If you don't move on, it, it really bad things will happen. What's the toughest thing you've ever dealt with? I mean, besides the eighty Olympic, getting divorced and the way it happened and my ex-wife was she's has mental challenges really i mean really tough you know so our children kind of take care of her a little bit now but she's 
through her mental illness and just the other things, the demons she was fighting, she made it very difficult for me. And uh, I actually highlighted this in my documentary, you know, um, I don't know if you've seen it or not, but I don't want to give it away. I didn't, have seen it. I didn't realize it was out there until a couple of days ago, and I'm really looking forward to seeing it. Where can people find that? Just if you Google the name uh, Wrestled Away, the Lee Kemp story, you can see it on pretty much every video-on-demand platform except Netflix. You can watch it on Google Play, Amazon Prime, um, whatever. It just, it'll pop up a lot of different places. Okay. Awesome. I can't wait to see it. Um, I have two more questions for you, and then I'll let you go. Do you have any advice for a new dad? Yeah. Um, embrace every moment of it. And I see Jordan Burroughs. I keep using his name a lot, but there's a man that I see pictures of him right now with all his whole family at, at the World Training Camp. He's embracing it. He picked a good spouse. She's all in, supporting him 100%. His kids uh, are all in. Uh, spending time with your kids. Like I've, I've known men who have done very well, successfully in business. They make a lot of money, but during those years, they were making all that money. They, they were in good marriages, so the wife kind of was at home with the kids, and the, and the, and the kids, the boys, didn't really, didn't really. I would say not judging them, but I think they. I think the point is they needed a dad at home, yeah, helping them. And uh, and I see it so clear now. I see it clear with, with this individual. And other individuals like that. It doesn't always end up that way. But I think all the men that this guy, this great guy inspired on the job because he, he ran companies and inspired people, even me and, you know, stuff like that. But in his own home, I can remember um, being around him once. And I can remember his wife was having to almost like make an appointment just to, to spend a date night with him, you know, because he was so busy. You know, I, I thought of that, like, wow, she's, she's getting on his calendar, his schedule, so she could see him. You know? Wow. And that was just the way they lived their life, you know? <clears throat> so, sure enough, he flew into town, and they they went to a movie and did their thing, and then the next morning he was off again working, you know? So, uh, he, he was having fun. He was doing exactly what he wanted to do. He was happy, fulfilled in his work life. And for a man, a man's work can fulfill him to a point where he doesn't need much else, you know, and, um, but there, but that's wrong. You do need other things, but, um, so just to not let work or your profession get in the way of the time you spend with your spouse and your kids to even minimize your life because the bigger gains are on the back end. And it's hard to see it that way. It started to because I I lived my life having a lot of money at one point, and I lived my life not having a lot of money. And the the most joy that I have gotten out of my life, and the most gratification that I look back on, was when I was taking care of my two kids. Yeah, and I was a single dad with them, struggling, and they saw me struggling. And because my kids saw me struggling, they're much more successful now. It's like when your kids know that there's a safety net out there, believe me, they don't try as hard. It's hard. You know, it's hard to know. It's hard to really go for something when you know that, oh, you know, my dad's got two Ferraris in the garage, you know. Like, how can you deny your kid a PlayStation when that when you have that situation? So when you have great success, sure, you've earned it, but it's almost like you have to pretend like you don't have money around your kids because yeah. 
I mean, it's just so weird. So, so I say, well, why even have it? I subscribe to the Warren Buffett style. He drives an old, not an old car, but a regular car. Wears regular clothes. Even though he could buy any house in the world that he wants, but he lives in a regular house. You know, I mean, um, because now you, you then you, you have time for people then. You have time. I like being around real people, authentic people. Yeah. Typically yeah. people that have these other things that money provided them, they're not authentic anymore. They're, they're like social media people, which I'm one of. I'll raise my hand. We always present the best side of ourselves sure. in social media, right? We never present our, the worst side of ourselves or something bad that happened to us. Yeah. So I say, I say dad having a child is the most beautiful thing in the world. I was blessed to have three children. I was there when they were all three were born. It was with my kids up until my youngest was five when family broke up. But um, but those memories of just having that uh, are the are the best. That because at, at the end of the end of the day, if you can't impact a young person's life, whether they're your kids or somebody else's, then why are you here on earth, really? If you can't be if you can't give back and help someone else yeah that and i see that clearly now that that is really what we're here on earth to do really we're not here on earth just to make a bunch of money for ourselves and keep it all for ourselves in fact it's to you know maybe maybe we've made a lot of money that we can give some of it away to me there's no reason there should be any poverty here in the united states now, granted, there's this thing about, you know, if you can, if you're able to work, you should. But there are a lot of people that, to me, have some serious psychological issues. Yep. And we allow those people to be lumped in with the with the scammers, I'll call them. Yeah, there are people that are scamming it, you know, people who, who could, could work. And, and I agree, the taxpayers, you know, it's frustrating if you work your, your butt off and you know people aren't doing. But there are people that are really struggling that are in the street living a horrible life. It's it's the biggest reason for homelessness is the mental health issue in this country that goes largely unaddressed. Exactly. And I'm not, not to give it away in my documentary, but I was struggling in a point in my life. And I could, I mean, I had resources around me, people, friends, like friend, billionaire friends, you know, because I was in a circle and I did good in wrestling. People liked me and I, I had good jobs and I had... Re- I was able to live with a friend for about three months while I got my life back together. What if I didn't have that? Yeah. I slept in my car for a while. I mean, thank God I had a car. What if I didn't have a car? You know, once you lean on friends and they get tired of you, because there'll they'll come a point where you just can't keep leaning on friends to give you stuff, then, then where are you now? Yeah. You're out in the street. You are. And then once once that first night goes by and that second night goes by and you're there... And I, it wasn't, I wasn't in the street, but I was in my car. I remember that first night in the car. Now, I've done it for fun when we're young. You sleep, you know, you're just, yeah. yeah, yeah. But when you're really, you don't have anything and you're struggling and you do sleep in your car, that first night is hard because you, you see yourself differently than that. And you finally, you finally succumb to it. Like, Man, I, I'm really here. And you, you get to that first night and the second night, you think, I got, you know, I, I got to stop this. I got to, I got to, and then you just you get afraid that you're never going to get out. And yeah. then you fight hard to get out. But what happens if you can't get out? And then, you know, what happens if a year goes by? 
I remember talking to a guy who was homeless. I because I rode my bike in this one area, and I sometimes talk to people, not often, but this one guy I was talking to him, and he probably wanted to tell me that you know, you know, I'm out here all the time. You know, I'm just having a tough time right now. He said I used to have a good job, and he, he wanted to feel pride in himself to tell me that he just, you know, I'm not gonna be out here long. You know, I'm gonna, you know, he was just trying to say that to me and I was like listening and thinking wow it's really hard you know I used to have a good job I used to have kids I said I, I, oh, I asked him I said do you have any children he said yeah but I don't like them see me like this you know so uh, I kind of stay away when I'm like this but yeah I have kids and that's the same answer I would have given you know? yeah <clears throat> and so we're all we're all there we're all human beings man. we're all you know it just gain a different appreciation for, but it, it's but when you but the but for you to give up and decide to stay outside, you have to be sort of mentally ill. Absolutely. Because why would you choose that if you had an option? Yeah, I say that to people all the time. I'm like, look at some of the idiots who are able to pay their bills and do this and do that. It's not because they're, you know, in in every other facet of their life they're whatever but it's because they're not crazy (laughs) you know which is a kind of a hard way to say it i guess but i mean i see it all the time and i run past people i don't run near that much as i used to maybe once a week but i'll pass homeless people and i just i just think to myself for the grace of god there go i you know i could easily be that guy i used to i quit drinking 11 and a half years ago but if i would have continued i mean you know i don't know what would have happened to me but it wouldn't have been good Man, I think we all need a dose of that, and uh, I think there's tough times coming. I think this this recent thing that we all went through with being forced to take this vaccine, and I don't care what side of the fence you're on with that, but whatever side of the fence you're on about that, the fact is it happened, and we were all subjected to things. And uh, what if we have a food shortage? What if we have some things? I mean, did you ever think gas prices would be 6 dollars over six bucks a gallon guess what it's not going down again this is like a new normal that we're in now i mean this is craziness but uh i think there are going to be some really tough tougher times coming that is going to scare all of us and we're all going to have to be tough we're all going to have to figure out how we're going to live our lives when this all happens yeah uh it's it's coming. It's coming. I store store shelves aren't aren't the same as they used to be. I see that now in certain stores. Yep. Um, not to go into conspiracies, but um, but um, certain brands of water I used to get. I, I was in Costco the other day and they didn't have this brand again. I'm like, oh wow, that's weird. They have this and shelves are looking bare. I mean, if that happens suddenly, what are we all going to do? Yeah. What if what if you can't get gas? What are, what are we going to do? Well, a lot of things are turning out to not be uh, near as conspiratorial as people once thought, and uh, I agree with you completely. About I, I think it's going to get a lot worse, and and I hope people can open their eyes to it and and all come together as human beings and realize that most of us aren't near as far apart as a lot of a lot of people want us to believe and and all that stuff. We're, we're not far apart at all. We are. <laughs> Man, we are <laughs> we are all human beings. This whole this whole thing of race was was created. Absolutely. And uh, we, we're all. I don't want to put it down into the 
the category of breeding because the breeding human beings I mean, we are, but but really when you have children all, I mean it's like the genetic process the genetic variability of all homo sapiens is probably two less than whatever the numbers like one tenth of one percent whatever so it's such a low number skin color melanin eye color hair texture all that but we're all Outside of that, we're all the same. That's why you can transplant organs and all this kind of stuff. I mean, and it's, it's not like I and my dad's family, he was very dark skinned like Michael Jordan. And he had brothers who were very light, like much lighter than me, like as light as think of the lightest person that America, like society calls black. I hate that, but we do that. We call people African-American black, even though they're light skinned, but they have black, like parents, whatever. But same mother and father, but they can have the variability of offspring just like it's like a it's like a litter of puppies almost you know yeah some could be dark hair some could be light hair whatever even that's what we are we're homo sapiens we are human beings of, of homo sapien sapien that's what we are we're not black people we're not white people we're not italians we're not greek we're not we're all, we're all the same thank you it's just it's just what group we live in it's nice. It's okay to be proud of being from the landmass that we might call Italy, and to have certain customs. Uh, it's it's okay to be from certain parts of Africa and have certain customs. It's okay. That's okay. It's and I think it's a natural tendency for people to want to be around people that kind of look like them. That's okay. But but we're all. But there's all there's been inner interbreeding through history, through since the beginning of time. Interbreeding, but primarily people groups tend to stay together, but they don't always have to stay together. Yeah. And uh, through history, they've never always stayed completely together. And this whole labeling of, of the race as we have done it in, in the, this last 500 years is evil, really. It's... Um, it's, 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 it's like if you look at Obama, right? And you, everyone in the world will call him a black man, right? But we know his lenience, right? You know that his parents are Tiger Woods. Or, so why, why do we all, why do you have to give up the lineage of one of your parents? Because someone told you to? And that's what America has done. Yep. We've created this race classification based on the hue of your skin how insidiously crazy is that uh, it's, I, it's sick really it's it, when i think about it, it makes me angry i mean all right everybody that was lee kemp three-time world champion three-time ncaa champion would have very likely been the 1980 olympic champion totally sucks for those guys those amazing wrestlers on that 1980 team to uh not get their shot at olympic gold and he Almost assuredly would have been an Olympic champion. You know, nothing's a given in this sport, but there's a very high probability that barring some sort of injury, he would have won it. And, uh, of course, I'm trying to wrap this up, and there's a plane flying overhead, but I'm just going to power through this. I would like to say the last four or five minutes of that did not get recorded. I don't know why um, it said that it was being recorded. Um, I won't get into all the technical stuff with you, but I quickly deleted something, and... Because I was running out of room, and 
hit record again and didn't think I missed anything, and it said it was recording, and it didn't. So if the podcast seemed like it ended super abruptly, that was why. Um, Mr. Kemp and I basically, I don't want to put words in Lee Kemp's mouth, but he basically agreed with me as far as the uh, division in this country being by design, and it was good to hear him say that. Um, and again, I don't want to try to summarize everything he said, um, but I, I, I really hate that you guys missed it. And uh, what, what an amazing man, uh, not just as a wrestler, but uh, what a smart dude. And, and I really enjoyed that podcast, the wrestling aspect of it, as well as some of the other things he had to say. And I hope you guys did too. As always, go to Making It Happen, M-A-C-A-N-It-Happen.com. Help out little Bo Macon and his family. And uh, I will be at the Looney Bin in Little Rock, Arkansas, September 28th through the 1st of October. I will be at the Wichita Looney Bin, October 6th through 9th. The Comedy Club of Kansas City, October 20th through the 22nd. And the Looney Bin in Tulsa, Oklahoma, October 26th through 29th. And then in middle November, I will be in Canada, I believe. But without any further ado, I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. Again, I'm very sorry about the last four or five minutes, um, but I enjoyed it and I hope you guys did too. And what a great guy, what a a champion on and off the mat, and so cool to hear his opinions about some things. And uh, I'm very sorry that the last few minutes got cut off. I can't apologize enough, but... There's worse things in life uh, that'll happen to you, so <laughs> so I'm very sorry, but I uh, can't do anything about it. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you guys. God bless all of you, and thanks so much for tuning in. Take care. Bye.